0: Let's talk about flying. So this is gonna be my first episode on environmental sustainability. I've been thinking a lot about flying recently. I can remember probably the first time I really felt flight shame. That was when I was a lecturer on sustainable development. It was my first year as a as a lecturer. Not my first year lecturing, my first year as a lecturer in charge of the first-year module on sustainable development at the University of St. Andrews. And I gave an initial lecture talking to students about what is most important to reduce someone's environmental footprint. And these are highly educated young people who are really passionate about making the world a better place. And a lot of the answers I heard were about information campaigns. That if people knew the impact they were having, they would change their behaviors. And they talked some about diet. I heard people talking about your clothing, all the water that goes into growing cotton, for instance, and a pair of jeans. There was some mention of travel. but I don't think I heard that many people talk about flying. And so when I got to the front of the room, I challenged them a bit. And I said, what if I told you that some researchers argue the best way to lower your carbon footprint is to be poor? And this was something that had startled me when I was studying the topic. Because I was someone who was middle class from a high-income country. and from the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. And I care so much about my environmental footprint, and quote-unquote doing the right thing or doing my bit for the environment. And yet I chose to go 4,500 miles away for university. And I didn't quite see the contradiction. I did at the time, but I didn't realize that flying is basically the most environmentally destructive activity an individual can engage in. And I didn't probably think about how I might sign myself up to a lifetime of feeling divided between my place of origin and the place that I now call home. That these would become 4,500 miles away across an entire continent, landmass, and an ocean. And so one thing I said to them was, I had them raise their hands, I said, you know, the environmental movement is actually quite educated and yet these people are still engaging in high consumption activities so I asked them how many of you consider yourselves concerned about the environment and all the hands went up and I asked how many of you would say that you're highly educated on these issues and most of the hands stayed up And then I asked, how many of them were vegetarian? Less than half of the hands went up. And I asked, how many of you have flown in the last year? And most of the hands went up again. And so we know there's a contradiction between environmental concern, or there's not always a, sorry, it's what's called the value action gap. So we know that someone might value Nature and their footprint on that, and their individual impact, but there's a gap between how they might behave. At least, if we come from a psychology perspective, we would see that as a disconnect. If you're coming from a more sociological perspective, you might not assume that someone's values should lead to their action because you're paying a lot more attention to the systems and the infrastructure that those choices are made in and how it's not really about individual choice. There's a lot of our choices that are constrained by when and where we live. So if I had lived or if I had been born 50 years before, it would have been a lot less likely that I would even consider that I could go to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland when I was from Washington State. Actually, if I go back say that would be two generations. So when my grandmother was born, it was a privilege for her as a woman to get to go to college. And actually, her brother was a gambler, and he gambled so much that his parents took her funds for going to college and paid for him a second time. (laughs) So uh, you can see how Just because of like when I'm born and where I lived and who my parents were enabled some of my choices, even though I might talk about it as an individual choice. So after this lecture, at the end of the semester, not right away, I remember going through the student feedback. And there's something special about student feedback in that it really cuts the bone on things you've probably had people say to you before (laughs) but there's something about it that you can have as usual or maybe like I said it was my first year as a lecturer this is my first year engaging with that level of feedback from 200 or 250 students um I wasn't as versed on focusing on the good so I did have good feedback um on my coursework but of course I focus on the one student who called me out as a hypocrite because I talk about flying I mean you can tell from my accent I've flown as well and um yeah they just had a real go at me like most people don't actually name uh specific staff members in their feedback but it was like Dr. Krebs. who are they to think that they should be lecturing us when clearly I had mentioned like being to Vietnam, my brother's wife is Vietnamese and we went over there for their wedding in 2008 and um, it was like she clearly flies, she shouldn't be able to like critique us for this and in some ways I was, I at least in future years, I made a point of saying, you know, this is to illustrate this point about this gap between concern for the environment, and uh, who is actually consuming more. But it's not necessarily about trying to make you feel bad on a personal level, because we're going to try to talk about the importance of system change and how this isn't an individual responsibility. I feel pretty certain I would have made that point throughout my lectures as well, because that's always been a core part of my own research and my understanding about climate change and how we try to not get focused too much on doing our little bit, but also thinking about wider system change. Like, for example, in the context of flying, frequent flyer levies are one of the most popular climate taxes because they're actually progressive because it's actually a small percentage of the global population who are flying. And that's true, for example, in the UK as well. So if we had a frequent flyer levy that taxed, uh, for instance, maybe your first flight, there's no tax. And then after that, there are increasing taxes for each flight. Or if there was a taxation just on the number of miles traveled, taxation on the amount of space you take up on a plane right business class takes up a lot more space than economy all of these are progressive as in they actually target the people who are doing the majority of the flying so who are having the biggest impact and most people won't be affected or won't be affected that much so they're really popular in the uk uh citizens assembly of 2020 80% 80% of the uh, 108 representatives and right a citizens assembly is all about getting a representative sample of society together to be educated about climate issues and then to vote on what they think are and recommend what they think to be the best solutions. And what's amazing about climate assemblies is so often government says, oh, it would be too critical. People won't accept you know, something like a frequent flyer levy. That's too radical. But that's not the case. Every time there's been voting on frequent flyer levies, people are all for it. So, that's what I mean by it. that's an opportunity to have a more systemic intervention. In some ways, I don't blame people who, you know, fly Ryanair. I, when I was a student at the University of St. Andrews, uh we flew to Oslo, I think, for 15 quid round trip. It was, like, the cheapest part of the entire holiday. Little did I know, as an American, that, like, alcohol could be so expensive <laughs> um, in a Nordic country. So, yeah, the flight was, like, cheaper than, I think, even most of our meals. So airplane fuel hasn't been taxed due to an agreement from 1944. And that means that it can be cheaper than other overland travel. And that's a problem, of course it is. And I know there's people who would like to travel by train or by bus if the infrastructure was there. It's kind of like when you go back to actually that climate, sorry, behavior change, a psychology perspective. It's like, if someone wants to take the bus, but you don't offer a bus, is that really their choice? Is that really a gap? Like, I would value, I think a lot of people would value uh, an affordable and timely bus or train service. But if it doesn't exist, then is it really a gap in their behavior that they're not using it? Same with cycling. We do see when, as soon as you put in cycling infrastructure, I mean, segregated bus lanes, then you don't just get people in Lycra, you get like, People of all ages, kids, grannies, like there's a safety element. If you build it, they will come. But if there's no bike transportation or like lanes and infrastructure for it, then yeah, people might want to cycle, but they might not be doing it. Anyway, so back to the student feedback. I took it really hard. Like, and it wasn't news to me. I knew it was a contradiction. I knew that I was flying as a student, about twice a year round trip back to Seattle. Sometimes I'd throw in a trip to Europe. You know, that was what my friends did. That was what I did. And I started cutting back, and I'm continuing to do that. So I read a lot of estimates that generally said if you fly once in three years, that might stick you within planetary boundaries. But even, um, a referenced just recently in the climate book edited by Greta Thunberg. Um, it would suggest you, you could take a short haul flight once in three years. And that makes me feel like I've already failed, right? Because a short haul flight doesn't really get me home to my place of origin. And it just so happens, this is probably the first time in my life, I need to check that with my parents. Because I remember, I'm pretty sure I flew when I was like one to get introduced to my great-grandmother so i think i've been flying probably at least once every three years since i was a kid because when we were five we came to europe Uh, we went to scotland actually in greece um so it'd be interesting i'm going to try to do the math for myself but i'm pretty sure actually thanks to the pandemic and Also, the fact that I'm trying to get my residency in the UK, there's just been factors that have meant I haven't really been able to fly in the last three years. Obviously, the thanks is like a slight tongue in cheek, but but also from a climate and individual carbon footprint perspective. Yeah, those circumstances have forced me to stay grounded. And in many ways, I've really enjoyed not being jet lagged. I found so much joy In gardening, I've always wanted to have uh, my own vegetable patch, and I've volunteered so much on community plots and with friends in their gardens, but I usually travel to see family and go back to the U.S. in the summer, and I've never been able to stay and grow food for a whole season, and it has been a blast. I've absolutely loved it. I was in my garden four to five days, if not more, this summer. And I felt so connected to the land. Usually I need to go to the mountains to feel the sense of release. And instead, on my little patch, I just saw how much it changed day by day. I felt like I had, you know, robin friends. And I liked seeing all the caterpillars come and go. And it was a real treat. So that makes me want to stay grounded in the summer. And that comes from a real place of joy rather than limiting myself and saying you know this is really something restrictive that i should do i shouldn't fly so i have enjoyed this sort of experiment but i should be able to fly soon i should have my residency soon and i am going to go back and see my family i grew up skiing uh since i was two which is crazy i don't understand how my parents like Wanted to put little sticks on my feet and let me fly down a mountain from that young age. But again, that feels part of me. And I am going to go back in March and I'm going to ski with my family, which is something I haven't done in three years. And I've never gotten to do with my nephew. So I'm very excited about that. And that, again, feels very joyful as a choice. But then I'm wondering, am I going to wait another three years? That does feel like the right thing to do. And yet, I'm not quite sure if I'm ready. I think I can fly once a year or once every two years. But again, I have nephews, I have aging parents. And I do wonder about, you know, if my parents were ever ill, I probably would fly back. So it's, I've been thinking a lot about what are the circumstances that lead need to fly. But I recently came across a new argument around declaring that you're not flying anymore and that was again in the climate book and i just thought this was fresh greta thunberg was saying that herself and most people she knows they haven't decided not to fly because of their carbon footprint even though that's sort of a benefit because in some ways that whole argument about like you could fly once every three years it is arbitrary since the majority of the population is not flying so there's also a morality issue there, like as you from someone from a high income country who's flown a lot in their lifetime and has used up, tech, you know, more than their fair share of resources, it makes sense to, in some ways you can't really justify even once in three years, right? It's almost kind of like historical carbon consumption from high income countries and then telling low, um, lower income countries that you know, they can't advance or that they don't get to consume those same sorts of resources. Um, But what she said, what Greta said is it's about acting differently in an emergency. It's about acknowledging, you know, the heat waves we're having and the floods and the droughts and all the suffering that's already being caused by extreme weather events and the changing climate. So her argument is really just start acting like it's an emergency. It's a way to start a conversation. It's a way to show that you're taking this seriously. And I suppose what I'm focusing on, at least for the moment, is starting to tell people that I'm not flying because there's a lot of times where I haven't. I could be flying back more than once every couple of years to weddings, to funerals. And, and I haven't been doing that and I haven't always been honest about it. For example, our wedding, we in the end just eloped in Glencoe in Scotland. It was amazing. We were below my favorite mountain. I'm going to say it wrong or right, depending on who you talk to. Uh, or some people call it the buckle and it was incredible I'd always wanted an outdoor wedding and but anyway we had booked a castle as you do in Scotland and this was before the pandemic hit so we'd booked a castle and we're gonna have You know, 60 people, so still a fairly small wedding, but probably a good 30 or 40 people who would be flying from the U.S., my aunts and uncles, my cousins, and my parents and my brothers. And I actually felt a relief when we had to cancel the castle. Of course, I was sad that I wasn't going to share that day with my family, but I was also so relieved that I wasn't encouraging so many people to fly on my behalf. And I didn't tell them that. I made an excuse that we had to cancel for the pandemic, and I didn't even mention my own concerns about climate change, and I'm starting to change that. I'm starting to say to people that I'm not flying because I'm worried, and it's a choice to lower my carbon footprint or to act like it's an emergency, and so that's actually part of why I'm recording this episode, because I'm really grappling with this privilege of flying and questions about how frequently I can fly or whether I could take the leap and commit to not flying in the foreseeable future. The other thing that comes up for me there, though, is, again, people flying to see you as a result. Do you then tell all family, no, nope, you can't come. I don't want to be responsible for your flight, the flights and your emissions. Because I think, yeah, 30 to 40 people coming over for a wedding, it's better that my husband and I fly back to the Pacific Northwest and do a celebration there than encourage all those people to come to us. Maybe I'm just bullshitting myself here, but that's one of the thoughts I've had. And again, I've lost family members in the last three years, and I'd like to go home and celebrate their lives with family And be part of that grieving process with my family. And I have done a lot of that from afar, and I know that's possible. But there's also something about touching the objects or seeing the place where those people lived that I think can be important and special. And so I suppose I see the flying I might still do is really about family and love and connection. But I'm quite happy, at least at the moment, I haven't had any work commitments that feel so urgent that I would fly for them. So I'm getting some clarity, but I would love to hear from others about if you fly, if you don't, and why. So feel free to send me a message. This is a piece I'm working on, and if you're willing, I might incorporate it but I would love to hear from others or just to hear people start talking more about flying because if you do focus on an individual level, it is one of the most environmentally impactful activities you can engage in. I hope this has been an interesting shift in the podcast to have a bit more focus on the climate. And again, I would love to hear from you. My email is ellsworthkrebs at gmail.com, E-L-L-S-W-O-R-T-H-K-R-E-B-S at gmail.com. And I'll have links in the show notes for the references that I've covered if you want to read more on frequent flyer lobbies. Finally, if you want to delve more into productivity and other coaching resources with me, do book a consult for one-to-one coaching. And I'll put the link for that in the show notes as well. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye.